Good morning, everybody. That was okay. <laughs> we'll disregard it. Lots of things to cover. I'm not going to give you guys a hard time about your lousy good morning, but okay. Um, where do we start? I'm so dis- distracted by your inability to say good morning properly. Thanks, guys. There we go. Okay. Someone said my name. There was, like, intentionality. They made it, they made it mine. Thank you. Um, okay, so uh, my name is Mitch Fierro. I'm one of the shepherds on staff here at Fullerton Free, and I'm just so grateful to be spending this morning with you. A um, little bit of fun information. I just celebrated my one-year anniversary here at the church, and so I'm officially... Um, yeah, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. So let's... let's, let's that clap is for many years to come. Uh, this morning, as we continue our time in John, uh, we're going to be in our Love and Trouble series, as it's titled. And so maybe there's some of you guys here this morning. Uh, it's your first time uh, visiting Fullerton Free, and you're staring up at this giant wheat-pasted mural behind me, looking at the words, love and trouble, thinking to yourself, uh, what in the world does that mean, and what does that have to do with the Gospel of John? Uh, well, it's actually quite simple. Um, the thought behind the title Love in Trouble, um, it, it, it's a few things, but one of them is that as we journey through this gospel and as we spend time with Jesus and the, the gospel, the good news of who he is, as it begins to capture and stir our hearts, that it should trouble us to our core at the very thought of living a life apart from that gospel. Or another way to look at it, as we're going to see today, is that sometimes as we live a life following Jesus, fully obedient to his gospel, um, we'll, we'll, we'll find ourselves in a bit of trouble with people around us. So in case you came in late, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the verses that we're going to be in today. And so go ahead and get out your Gospel of John journaling Bible. Say that 10 times fast. Gospel of John journaling Bible. Um, if you have it, go ahead and get it out. We're going to be on page 48, which is... John chapter 8, verses 1. And if you're wondering what the Gospel of John Journaling Bible is, uh, this is one way in which we as a church are worshiping through the series of John. We're we're worshiping as we journal our journey. And so if you're new, uh, maybe you haven't gotten one of these, or uh, if you lost one, first go to Lost and Found, because Jennifer and I had a conversation this week, and we have a lot of these in the front office. And so if you lost yours, first try to get your other one back. And then if not... um, do we have some people walking around in blue shirts that say host or guest central on them? Or you could visit guest central and pick up a copy of your own. And so uh, these are for you to kind of serve as a, a field note or a journal of our time through the Gospel of John. And so like I said, page 48, uh, chapter 8, we'll actually start in 7, um, verse 53. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote in the wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we, we are here because of you, God. We are here uh, to sing worship to you, God. We are here to learn more about you, Father. And so I pray that as we spend this time with you this morning, God, that you would, that you would capture our hearts, God. That through your word that you would transform us, that you would inspire us, and that you would call us to leave this, this place, God, looking and living more like your son, Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, jumping into the text. Um, This is one of those easy portions of scripture that we can literally just look at for the next 30 minutes and just read over and over again. It really does a good job of of, of teaching itself. It's a beautiful story of the kindness and the grace and the redemption that that Jesus brings. But I think there's some interesting things that are happening in this story that uh, maybe we don't always recognize. And so I'm just going to be entering uh, some some commentary as, as we journey along the way. So the first thing I want to bring to your attention, and you're probably, probably noticing it on your own, uh, most of your Bibles, beginning before this uh, portion of the text, says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. That might be troubling to you. So it's in the Bible, but the Bible says it's not in the Bible, but yet we find it in the Bible. Um, as a young follower of Jesus, um, I still am a young follower of Jesus, by the way, um, that, that was very troubling to me. I, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to make sense of it. Um, but I always recognize the fact that it's there. Um, and that statement is actually 100% accurate, that in the, the earliest manuscripts that have been found, um, this portion, 753 through 811, uh, we don't see it in, um, in those early copies of the Gospel of John. But then in later uh, manuscripts, we begin to see it surface uh, it, it surfaces in the, the, the spot in which we see it this morning. Um, most times, though, it was found at the end of the Gospel of John as an appendix. And even in some cases, it was found in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so we can have a very long conversation about textual criticism and, and why it's there. Um, and uh, for the sake of time and really for the sake of you guys who probably don't really care um, I'll simply tell you the two reasons why we're spending time in the text this morning, and this, this portion of the text. Uh, the first is that, one, um, as we've been journeying through the Gospel of John, we're beginning to see Jesus' character, we're beginning to see Jesus' identity, and the verses 7:53 through 8, 11, um, they fit again, and they, they, they highlight that, that, that character and that identity of Jesus that we've already begun to see, and so um, that's probably the main reason why we're, we're spending time in this text this morning. Um, and the second reason is this, um, it's there. There are scholars that came before us and did the work and decided that the best place to put it is here, right in between chapter 7 and 8, right in between these stories. So uh, we're going to honor the the work of those scholars and we're going to read that text this morning. Um, And so you're the type of person that you geek out on this kind of stuff and you want to have that really long conversation with me about textual criticism and why we should not be covering this text this morning. I want to give you my email address so that we can email each other and have this conversation. Um, as you're emailing me, I love lots of sites, so, so give me all of your, um, your references, as many quotes as you can, um, and email me at darrenmcwaters at <laughs> 
And if I respond to your email and I'm really confused in the fact, like, why are you emailing me in the first place, um, just know that that's how I send all of my emails. I'm usually pretty confused about things. So, um, so yeah, so, so email me and we can uh, start that conversation uh, only in email form. So, what's happening now in the text? Well, last week, Darren talked about how Jesus... Um, said he wasn't going to go, but ended up going to the Feast of Booze and kind of used this time to talk about who he is and to promise those who are thirsty that they would never thirst again. The Feast of Booze, or in some of your translations, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, comes to a close, which is it's a week-long celebration. Um, it's kind of like the Jewish Firefest or Coachella. Um, so they're probably all really exhausted coming back from that. Um, so it says that everyone goes home and Jesus retreats to the Mount of Olives. Then in verse 2, the next morning, it says that Jesus uh, returns to the temple and begins to teach. And as he's teaching, it says that there is a crowd gathered to hear him. And as his crowd is gathered, the narrator then tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes bring him a woman that has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, it's safe to say that the Pharisees and scribes are not bringing this woman to Jesus in order to seek his counsel or to ask his advice on how to deal with this um, particular situation. Um, What it is, is the Pharisees and the scribes attempting to trap Jesus. As we see so far, Jesus' reputation is growing. He's beginning to develop uh, some street cred, and the spiritual leaders are, are they're kind of growing weary. They're a little nervous about this guy, um, maybe even worried that they're losing their own influence or losing their own uh, position. And to be all honest, they're probably even a little worried that some of the things that Jesus has said um, sounds kind of, kind of crazy. Remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus talked about um, eating of his flesh and drinking his blood. And then last week, it talked about, Jesus talked about drinking from his water, you will never thirst again. And so I, I can see kind of where the Pharisees and scribes are coming from. And just being good teachers, they're a little worried about these things that Jesus is saying. So without a clear way or an obvious way to get rid of Jesus, uh, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees devise a trap by bringing this woman who's caught in adultery to Jesus, and after they bring her to him, they ask him what he would do. Rather, specifically, they ask him, the law of Moses says this, Jesus, what do you say we should do? You see, in the minds of the Pharisees and the scribes, um, this, this trap, which is actually pretty ingenious, as, as we'll see, um, this trap can go in, in multiple ways. You see, the first is that uh, Jesus will come to the defense of this woman and he will excuse her sins, which would be contrary to the law of Moses. No, No good teacher or prophet has ever disagreed or written off the law that God gave Moses. So what that would do is that all of the influence that Jesus has begun to kind of uh, earn among the religious elite or religious leaders, um, Jesus would, would, would quickly lose that influence. And this, we, we can imagine guys like, like Nicodemus being the, the, the type of people that would be offended by Jesus disregarding the law of Moses. Now, another outcome could take place where Jesus agrees with the scribes and Pharisees, and he gives the charge to stone this woman. 
And so by Jesus agreeing for the crowd to stone this woman, he would then be alienating the new base that he's developing. You see, I think the scribes and Pharisees were being a little strategic in the person that they brought because Jesus is beginning to develop a relationship with these type of people. Jesus is being known as hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes and the like. So they bring one of Jesus' people to him and they throw her before him wanting to see how he will respond to them. And so if Jesus responded in the favor of the scribes and the Pharisees, he would quickly alienate this new base that he um, is building with the outcast and the marginalized of society. And then there's a third outcome. If Jesus agreed with the scribes and Pharisees and gave the okay for this woman to be stoned, Jesus would be exercising judgment and justice. We have to remember that the nation of Israel is still under Roman rule, and so the only person or the only people that have the power to exercise justice and judgment is the Roman Empire. So by Jesus giving permission for this crowd to stone this poor woman, all the Pharisees had to do was call the Roman guard and have Jesus locked up, imprisoned, and possibly even killed. So like I said, this is, this is a well-thought-out plan. There aren't a lot of ways, uh, there aren't a lot of obvious ways for Jesus to get out of this. So to put this plan into action, all they had to do was first uh, find this poor woman. So they either trolled the streets looking for someone that is committing adultery and then to drag out the woman uh, and bring her to Jesus, or they, they, this whole thing is a sham. This whole thing has been set up, that they only bring the woman to Jesus and present her. And after they present her, they cross their arms and they stand back and they watch how Jesus deals with her. Now, before we look at Jesus' response, uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys are asking yourself, well, what exactly is the law of Moses? That seems to be the thing that that this argument or this conversation is pivoting on. Uh, Let's look exactly what the law says about this particular situation. The first is an obvious, easy one. Uh, It's in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. By the way, am I the only one that memorized the Ten Commandments in the Old King James? Thou? Okay, cool. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Then if we look um, in, in the Old Testament a little bit further, we'll see in Leviticus 20.10, it says that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then in Deuteronomy 22.22, it also says that if a man found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so that you purge evil from Israel." So, with that, all that information, the scene is now set. I think we all have a pretty clear idea of what's happening, but before we move on and see how Jesus responds, let's take a second, or take actually a bit of time to look at what Jesus is doing. Uh, Side note, before we we move on, uh, one of my mentors, whenever him and I spend time together, we usually spend time uh, looking at or reading one of the Gospels with one another, and um, he's kind of taught me these three questions to ask every time we're spending um, any amount of time in the Gospels. Uh, When we're looking at the life of Jesus and we're looking at the actions of Jesus, always ask ourselves, what's happening in the narrative? What's happening in the story in which we find Jesus in? And we just did that. Then the second question he would always pose is... What is Jesus doing in the midst of what is happening? And then once we identify what Jesus does, 
we then can model Jesus and his actions to the world around us. How can we then be like Jesus? So this morning, we're simply going to look at those very three things, and actually, I encourage you to write those down. Actually, I think I gave them to you on a bookmark at one point, but as you're journaling through, journeying through John, uh, keep those questions on the back of your mind. What is happening in the narrative? What is Jesus doing? And how can we be like Jesus? So what is Jesus doing uh, where we find ourselves in Scripture today? Well, if we look back to verse 2, we are reminded that Jesus, after retreating to the Mount of Olives, returns to the temple, and what? He begins to teach. And even though Jesus is rudely interrupted by the scribes and Pharisees, we see Jesus with laser focus exercise his ability to reclaim this moment and make it teachable. I think just as much as the scribes and Pharisees have an agenda here uh, in this moment to regain their own influence, to regain their own authority, I think Jesus is, you're going to see Jesus has an equal or even more influential, influential moment that's about to unfold. You see, Jesus has been interrupted. The woman is presented before him. And the scribes and Pharisees are waiting for Jesus' response. What do you say we should do? And at the second, on the second half of verse 6, it says, in response to the question, Jesus bends down and writes with his finger in the ground. When, trying, when fully knowing he's trying to get got, essentially, that he, he, he simply, in silence, kneels down and begins to write in the sand or on the ground. This is kind of a gangster move by Jesus, right? Like, like he's having this like teachable moment. People are around to hear what he's saying and these guys show up to like distract him and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't even dignify their question by giving them a response. In silence, he kneels to the ground and begins to write. Now, I think a lot of people, this is where uh, people get sidetracked or they get caught up in, in, in the story because everybody wants to know what Jesus is writing right? Is he drawing? Is, I, I don't know. Is he naming the sins of this woman? Is he naming the sins of, of, the people, of, of her accusers? Um, is he writing verses in the Old Testament that, um, that show the grace of God? We don't, we don't know. I don't think the emphasis, though, is on what Jesus wrote, but I think the emphasis should be on the fact that Jesus wrote. Let me say that one more time because those words, they can kind of blur together and I talk really fast. I'm aware of this uh, because some of you guys have told me I talk too fast. Um, It's not what Jesus wrote. It's the emphasis or the emphasis should be on the fact that Jesus wrote. Remember, we find ourselves in a time where teachers did not have access to things like chalkboards or whiteboards or mirror screening up to Apple TVs or, dare I say, overhead projectors. You guys remember overhead projectors? Base camp, do you guys know what overhead projectors are? Yes, a couple nods. Gosh, I am so old. All right. They, Jesus didn't have access to those kind of things. So what, what, what the teachers and the scribes would do is they would actually, with a stick, write in the ground. And if the stick wasn't available, they would then kneel down and they would write whatever it is they were teaching or write their illustrations or draw their drawings with a finger on the ground. 
So when Jesus kneels to the ground, it's not to regain uh, where he was. He's not sidetracked by the Pharisees and scribes' intrusion. Rather, he kneels down because he's maintaining the focus of what he was in the temple to do. He's in the temple to teach the crowd. And in this moment, his crowd just grew a little. And now it's not just people there to hear what he's saying, but it now includes Pharisees, scribes, and this poor, naked, and ashamed woman. And he's going to use this moment to teach them, to teach everyone who's listening who he is and why he has come. And of course, unhappy with Jesus' response, the scribes and the Pharisees, they press in and they ask again, Maybe at this point, Jesus is beginning to be a little bit uh, irritated by their, their, their consistency and their, their, their asking for his opinion. And so it says, he gets up upon their second inquiry, and he says to the scribes and the Pharisees and this woman that's standing before him and anyone else in the crowd, he's saying, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And in that one simple sentence... Um, It's as if Jesus is saying to the crowd, okay, if this woman is truly guilty, do it. If the scribes and the Pharisees, if their accusations were correct, there should be an agreement between between Jesus and the Pharisees on how to resolve this situation. Stone the woman. But before he fully endorses their judgment, or the judgment that they recommended, Jesus adds one small caveat. But before you stone her, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, I think for many people, uh, when they hear that verse, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, and they partner it with things like Paul in Romans chapter 3 when he says, that uh, all of us are sinners and have, have fallen short. It's easy to put two ideas like that together and say, well, then, really, no one is fit to judge me. Only God can judge me. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, that would be horrible if, if that was the reality of, of Jesus' is, is saying. But even though that's not what Jesus is trying to communicate, we we've have somehow, whether it be throughout time or at least in this cultural moment where we find ourselves, uh, we've, we've been able to use verses like this to begin to deconstruct morality in Western culture and more alarmingly, deconstruct righteousness within the church. Now, in regards to secular culture, uh, we can, or at least I can, talk for hours about the church's influence on sexual sexu- secular culture in the West. Or we could talk about the the decline of morality in the last 50 years. Or whether or not Western morality was ever even rooted in the gospel in the first place. Those are the conversations that get me fired up. And if you'd like to have those conversations, you can email me at my other email address, (laughs) mitchfierro.com, and I will respond to you knowing what you're talking about for that one. But the term only God can judge me has gone from a saying that inmates and criminals use to make peace with their bad decisions or to justify wrong decisions. Essentially, we've taken a Tupac verse and made theology 
out of it. It, it, it becomes a makeshift theology that grants permission to the individual to define morality, or dare I say, to the church to define what constitutes sin. If this is what Jesus is saying, that, 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 that no one can judge us, no one can exercise judgment, um, I would not want to be alive today. I would not want to have children today. I would not want to ever leave my house it would be total and complete, utter chaos. Judgment is absolutely necessary. Justice is absolutely necessary. It is part of our human condition. You can visit corners of the world without the written word, and there is still a form of justice and judgment in play. Wrong is wrong, no matter how you spin it or justify it. And this is not what Jesus is saying. And actually, as we continue to read, we're going to see the, the, the judgment that Jesus actually um, exercises or the judgment that Jesus um, has for this woman. But Jesus' response, it, it's not for the woman. And it's not a blanket state, uh, a blanket statement for all of, all of humanity. The woman, like I said, is not off the hook for her actions. And like I said, Jesus will deal with her. When Jesus is saying, let him who is without sin, he's actually turning the table on his accusers. It's like in the old Wile E. Coyote Roadrunner cartoons where Wile E. Coyote um, is hungry and he wants to catch the Roadrunner because he wants to have a dinner. And so he orders some crazy acme contraption in which he's going to catch the Roadrunner and eat dinner. And so he sets up this elaborate scheme in the middle of a highway. Like, who's not going to notice a rocket in the middle of a highway, right? So he sets up this thing in the middle of some desert highway, and the roadrunner rolls up to it and immediately recognizes what the coyote is trying to do. And the coyote sneakily puts on his little tablecloth or thing, and he's hiding behind a rock with his fork and knife, waiting, waiting for roadrunner to get caught in his trap only for the roadrunner to see what is happening and with the flick of a feather, turn the trap, flip the rocket, flip the cannon, turn the giant fly swatter, whatever it is, to turn it over on to Wiley Coyote. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here. You see, in, in an attempt to discredit Jesus, Jesus now is discrediting his accusers. You see, they were right about the woman. Um, but they also left out a little bit of details. Like we read in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's the adulterer and the adulteress that should be stoned. It's the man and the woman that should be stoned and that both were worthy of death. But for some reason, uh, our accusers left out or forgot to bring the other guilty party. And there are theories uh, over this whole fiasco, like, like I said earlier, like whether it's staged um, or some even believe that uh, the male accuser was one of their friends and they didn't want to tarnish his reputation and so they, 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 they left him and only brought the woman. But either way, this, this accusation about the woman being caught in the act of adultery, um, the man should have been at least identified, if not him brought to judgment, at least the fact of who he was brought to judgment with the woman. But since that detail was left out, 
Legally, it, it, it changes our accusers. You see, they, they no longer are accusers, but they become accomplices or accessories. Again, according to the law that they're quoting, the law of Moses, the eighth commandment, eighth commandment is that thou shall not bear false witness. The very law that their elaborate trap was built upon ends up being the very weakness in their accusation. And like a theological mic drop, Jesus drops it, bends his knee, and continues to write on the ground. And then it says, one after another, beginning with the oldest first, the entire crowd vanishes, leaving Jesus with the woman. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching the crowd. Jesus is teaching his opposers. And Jesus is teaching this woman. And it's a lesson on the law. And it's a lesson on judgment. And more importantly, it's a lesson about the kindness and the grace of God. And how he's willing it to offer anyone who sticks around to hear it. You see, this woman who is naked, ashamed, embarrassed, belittled, objectified, she becomes the example of what Jesus is trying to teach. You see, throughout this whole ordeal, uh, Jesus never mocks her. Jesus never even gives her any attention. He doesn't belittle her or shame her in front of the crowd or the Pharisees and the scribes. But rather, we see Jesus show her compassion. And before Jesus ever tells her to get her life together, he shows her grace and kindness. Paul in Romans chapter 2 says, don't you realize that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance? And in verse 10, we see Jesus kindly ask this woman, who still condemns her? And her response is, no one, Lord. In which Jesus replies, neither do I condemn you. See, what Jesus is trying to teach in this moment is that the law matters. That when the finger of God pinned the tablets to Moses, when the finger of God wrote, thou shalt shalt not commit adultery, that law matters. And when it is broken, there needs to be a judgment that comes in the form of a life. And the same goes for the law, thou shalt not bear false witness. When the law is broken, there needs to be judgment in the form of a life. Whether the life of an individual or the life of a sacrifice, a life is always given. And because God knew this very thing, he sends his son Jesus. And it is Jesus who was and is the only person that ever existed to be without sin. So in this moment, in this argument, in this fiasco in which we find ourselves, the only person who could have legally thrown a stone at the woman or thrown a stone at the scribes and Pharisees or thrown a stone at the crowd for not saying anything was who? Jesus. But that's not what Jesus does. Because we know the story We know that it is Jesus 
that will ultimately receive the judgment that this woman and her accusers and the crowd ultimately deserves. And in Jesus' interaction with this woman, when he sends her off, giving her the command to sin no more, it's only first after receiving the unwarranted, scandalous grace of Jesus. And after, after receiving his grace and receiving his kindness, Jesus then tells her to sin no more. It's like I shared about our series, Love and Trouble. That when we begin to truly understand the grace and the kindness of Jesus, when we've seen ourselves guilty like this woman, and in recognition that somebody needs to get me out of this situation, somebody needs to save me, when we see our lives like that and we see Jesus for who he is, it should stir or it should rock us to the core for us to ever think that we could live a life outside of that grace and goodness of Jesus. And so when Jesus sends this woman off to sin no more, it's not a command for her to get her life together, but it's, but it's a command for her to recognize where her grace, where her forgiveness, and who the one is that's giving her this kindness. So in light of this, how do we respond to this story? Well, I think the easiest way is that we look at the life of this woman, and I think there's probably people in here this morning that look at her and they can identify with who she is. Maybe you've made poor decisions. Maybe you've found yourself in a season of life where you just don't know how to get yourself out of. You've surrounded yourself with people who are beginning to influence you and that maybe help you make bad decisions. And you just feel yourself continually further and further and further sinking in need of help, in need of someone to pull you out of the pit that you find yourself in. And if that is you, I want to say to you that before you even think of pulling yourself out of that pit, that Jesus extends his grace to you, Jesus extends his kindness to you, Jesus extends his goodness to you exactly where you find yourself. This woman being ripped out of an adulterous situation, being dragged through a town naked and ashamed, being thrown in the temple in front of a bunch of other religious people, being thrown before Jesus, Jesus looks at her and gives her compassion and gives her kindness and says, I know what you've done. I know where you've been. These guys can't condemn you and neither will I. And if that's you, I want to say, simply receive that. If you find yourself in that pit desperately wanting to get out, the fact that Jesus loves you exactly how you are, that is truth, that is reality. Hold on to that. And then as you begin to experience and see the love of Jesus, and you begin to see the gospel worked out in your life, and you begin to see the goodness of God throughout his scriptures, the call to sin no more becomes easy because you're compelled you, don't ever, you wouldn't ever want to live a life outside of the goodness that Jesus brings. And the second way to respond is to that question that I asked. How do we be like Jesus? We extend the same grace, we extend the same kindness to the people around us 
that find themselves either far from God or in situations that they have no control over. I heard a story this week of someone that, that, that has a neighbor who's a drug dealer. And perhaps you have a, very, a neighbor similar to this. They may not be a drug dealer, but there may be some shady stuff happening in their house. And every day you look out your window, arms crossed, just waiting for the police to knock the door down and take that person away. Or maybe you know someone that has a different sexual preference than you. And it drives you crazy that they call themselves a Christian. And you look at them and you cross your arms and you wait for them. You wait for their life to fall apart so you can say, you see, you never knew Jesus. Whether that be the immigrant, whether that be the person of another religion, whatever it is, we are not called to cross our arms and to simply stare and watch the world around us spin in the downward spiral, but rather we are called, like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did, and to enter into the lives of those people, to kneel down next to them, and to show them the kindness and the grace of Jesus. What a privilege that you and I are invited into, that we get to leave this place as ambassadors of this goodness that we just heard. So if you find yourself being the first person, I just hit my thing. If you find yourself being the first person, I want to tell you that there are people here that want to pray for you. And as we end our, as we end our service today, we're going, to excuse, we're going to excuse you to leave, but we're going to let you know that we have a prayer room next to us. And we have people in that room that simply want to come alongside you, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how deep or how far you, find, you think you are from Jesus, and simply want to encourage you and pray for you that you would see and experience the love of Jesus. You don't even have to come in with words. You can simply come in with your head down, sit on the couch, and there are people that will come alongside you and pray for you. Don't, don't, don't miss that opportunity. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good, Lord. We thank you for Jesus and his life and how we get to look at your goodness lived out in him and hold on to the truth that, Lord, you want to do the same within us, God. So, Father, if there's anyone here that hasn't received that grace, Lord, we pray for them. Lord, would your Holy Spirit stir their hearts in this moment that they can't leave this place without asking for prayer. And, God, would you stir the hearts of the rest of us that as we leave this place that we would be excited at the privilege to be ambassadors of your kindness and goodness to the community around us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.